In this show, we talk to Ron Carucci, an author, TED speaker, and leadership expert on his 30 years experience of helping organizations to change. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. I'm Scott Allender, co-host of the show, along with the always inspiring John Gomes. And if you're new to our growing community of evolving leaders, I want to extend a special welcome to you today because we really appreciate you checking us out. And to give you a little bit more insight about what we're about, each week we speak to experts from across a wide spectrum of disciplines, from neuroscientists to psychologists, Economists, entrepreneurs, well-being experts, sense-making experts, and the list goes on and on. So we invite you to go back and have a listen to these previous shows. If you haven't already, uh, we think that you'll find it well worth your time. So let's get the show going today. John, my friend, how are you feeling? I'm feeling much better. I'm recovering from uh, this uh, this kind of cold, fluey thing that's been going around, uh, which mm. rendered me feeling pretty ill <laughs> to be honest <laughs> i was quite quite cross it was an interesting feeling actually of the kind of resentment and anger after 2 years of feeling remarkably healthy to to feel like that but now i'm feeling i'm feeling much better how are you feeling scott well, and I know you don't like to to stop for for any reason so i know no. being knocked out is not a, a good combo for you but uh Glad you're feeling better. Um, yeah, I had a touch of, of of something, some illness as well last week, but uh, I'm doing good. I'm a little tired, but uh, as always, super energized to uh, do a show with you on a Friday because it always sets up the weekend for for all sorts of stimulus, and and I just I'm buzzing all weekend after we get to do this. So uh, let's jump in. Today we are joined by Ron Carucci. Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record of helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. And he is the best-selling author of eight books, including his most recent, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, justice, and purpose. He's also been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, MSNBC, and Business Week, just to name a few. Uh, such an impressive background. Ron, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Gentlemen, a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to the show, Ron. How are you feeling today? I'm actually feeling great because it's a Friday, uh, and so we have a weekend coming up, and so I'm excited to... Um, to sort of go enjoy that. Yeah, good to hear. Um, let's start with a bit more context around your work and background. Can you give us an overview of um, your approach to helping grow and develop leaders? Yeah, so um, we um, we have sort of a, a code language at Navalent for the work we do. Um, when we think about transformational work, um, our code language is um, within, between, and among. And we, which means we look at three different domains. We look within the leader, deep within them, to their biases, their psyches, their origin stories, their, their sense of self and how they see the world. Um, we look between leaders, between a leader and their teams, between a leader and their other adjacent departments they have to work with or coordinate with. Um, we look at the seams between them. And then among, we look at the leader's systemic factors. We look at the culture in which they have to, to, to deliver a remit. We look at the strategic um, requirements of their work. We look at the competitive set in which their organizations compete, um, the intensity of the industry in which they work. Um, because we understand that, that if you don't look at all three of those, 
and you only do one of them, you're likely not to really achieve actual real transformation. So we sort of examine all three of those levels to think about how, what's, what's a leader's requirements, what's their, where are they starting from, and what are all the different ways we have to close the gap. So that if, if a leader, for example, is struggles with decision-making, but their organization's governance is equally as dysfunctional, no one's going to notice. But if they struggle with decision-making in a very efficient governance process, they're going to stick out. Um, so that's why the context of all three of those matter. Um, me turning you into an effective decision-maker that makes you comfortable, that doesn't fit your context, is of no help. So I really like that. Um, within, between, and among. So can we just stay with that for one, one second longer um, and give us some context or, or an example of what it looks like to, to go in and raise awareness around those three components? So our, um, our diagnostic process is pretty forensic. We begin with a really uh, comprehensive, multiple view of the leader's look, you know, which include forensic interviews, including I'll talk to spouses or children, um, you know, direct reports, peers, friends, sometimes parents. I've talked to, mm-hmm. you know, so when we bring our data, so we have a proprietary software which we code all the data we collect. So when I hand a report back to a leader, they hear every comment we heard. You know, it's 30, 40, 50, 80 pages of data coded systemically by a set of strategic patterns against a, a, a systems model, against sort of a, here's how organizations work, here's how you fit, fit in. This is the story that you and others are telling about you. Hmm. Um, and we spend a day immersed in that story um, because each, each one of those themes is a double click. To say, let's let you know. So it seems that as though in certain kinds of meetings you have a short temper. Let's talk about that. Um, or it seems in certain places you freeze up. Or there are some members of your team with whom you have great relationships, but some members of your team you seem not to connect well with. So any pattern or theme supported by real, you know, real things people said, real data, helps me sort of jar a leader into, oh, okay, gosh, this is not the story I thought I was in. Or some of this is the story I thought I was in. Some of it's completely a new story to me. Um, how do we make sense of the story? How do we make sense of how we, how we got here? Um, and then what is it you like the next chapter to say? Hmm. Um, so we begin to, you know, sort of turn the corner from the data to what's next. Now, sometimes there may be, um, things I, I learned about data that, that are, have long histories to them that may be what I call coaching resistant issues. You know, maybe intractable learned patterns of behavior that come from, you know, childhood trauma or some long, some long ago learned behavior for which I'm going to have to do, dig a little deeper to, to go get after if I'm going to actually help you change versus putting on cosmetic band-aids or techniques to try and manage it or regulate it when it really is going to keep popping back up. Hmm. So we, 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 from that data, we develop a plan. Say, okay, here's the two or three things we're going to, we're going to take on, including something that, that might be actually be a superpower or something really uh, unique to you that we can leverage better than we're leveraging it now. Um, and we'll socialize that plan with your team, with your sponsors and bosses. Um, and then from there, we'll, you know, whatever, whatever the plan calls for, I will accompany you on that journey to carry it out. Can we just um, look at a particular case uh, within this? Because um, I don't want to oversimplify uh, in any way, shape or form, because I can, you know, I can immediately understand that the complexity and variation in this is, is huge given the amount of different diagnostic factors you're looking at. But one case that pops up quite a lot um, and it has lots of different flavors to this is the organization um, that's had people working in it for a long time. 
they've they've come up through the organization the individuals are highly identified with and their sense of worth is highly identified with the system that they grew up in the system then reaches a crisis point of change where they uh, are out of step the organization and themselves are out of step with the, the market reality and that's really difficult on lots of levels because the story they've told themselves is not just the story of who they are but who the organization is and they're kind of almost indivisible um, yep. that's that's a pretty big crisis for an individual to face in yep. that context T- tell us a little bit about what you've learned about that situation seen that movie too many times to count it's a great case john um so the, a couple of variables. One is, um, so, you know, the, the opening messages you've got calibrated for too long, <clears throat> you, they've been well-crafted and well-constructed systems of denial. And there were t- tea leaves, you know, sending you smoke signals three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. Then the fire became one alarm and, and then you just kept missing the, you kept, you stand on the highway, and kept missing the exit. Right. And now, so here we are. Um, so, the, p- part of the, the options depend on how acute the crisis is, right? Um, most people in that situation want, want silver bullets that they can't have. Um, and my message is often, it took you five years to screw this up this badly uh, and, and miss all the signals. We're not going to be out of this ditch tomorrow. And so you either need to be the strap into the long haul here, assuming that the marketplace gives you enough runway, you have enough cash to do it, or, or you exit because... Um, do, do, the last thing you want to do is, is triangle on a cosmetic journey that creates the appearance of change because your people now are demoralized. Um, you, you, you've made headlines. You're, you, you had customer, employee, you've had defections. People are, are, are withdrawing from you now. <clears throat> and so sometimes the very first thing we have to crack is the mea culpa, right? There has to be a, a, a sort of a reckoning of responsibility for having denied, ignored, dismissed, whatever it was, because the only way you're going to regain credibility at this point is to acknowledge that this is not a crisis that's new, right? So we'll, and and assuming they can be credible and there really is genuine remorse for that, then I can, I can help. You can buy a lot of grace, which can buy you a lot of time uh, with a very sincere taking of responsibility and apology for people you've hurt by ignoring things you should have seen or chose not to look at. Um, so let's assume we can get that far. N- now it's the long haul. It's the long game, right? So let's look at the competitive dynamics you ignored. Let's look at the offerings. Let's look at what you, you know, who are, who, where, where do you still have competitive strength or competitive assets that you can leverage? Where can you still win? Um, who has been loyal to you? If there, if there really are major gaps there, do we need to put you into someone else's portfolio? Do we need to think about joining forces with somebody else in some other way that gets you a little bit of accelerant competitively. That's a set of strategic options. Often what it typically means is that your strategy and your organization design have outlived their usefulness um, and that you still have the ability to compete and win, but you have to reconfigure what you do. Right. And so then we have to take a hard look at the leaders you have to say, do those leaders fit that new story? And, And you probably have to import some new blood and some fresh thinking which I'm assuming if you, uh, having raised that case, John, you've seen the movie where you have the old guard, new guard, right? I'm, I actually have a client I'm dealing with right now. Yeah. You know, we've been with them for 12 years and major, you know, major portion of their audition supply, the whole supply chain was out of step. 
they compete in a very intense category, a very privileged category, a very robust category. But and their market facing stuff was great, but their ability to you know produce it really antiquated. And they deferred that, kicked that can down the road too long, and now here we are in a pandemic with global supply chain issues. And so now, and they brought in a whole bunch of new countercultural people in that whole supply chain world, which of course now I've got 137 pages of data that are talking about the we, they camps of many kinds. We're headed in next week to sort of begin that reconciliation process of figuring out. Uh, and I'll start on Monday with that new head of supply chain talking about, okay, how are we gonna craft your mea couple here? Cause you clearly missed the tea leaves when you came in and made your diagnosis and indictment. So a big part of our audience listening to this are people like you and I who actually do this work and, and, and uh, manage that particular situation. What's the biggest trap you find yourself in? Because you know, you've been doing this for a very long time and you've got a very well-trodden path in terms of how you understand it and t- deal with it. What, what do you find yourself falling into in terms of traps that might actually reinforce the problem? Well, you know, I mean, one of the one of the one of the benefits of having seen a movie and detected patterns for so long is that sometimes you can you can reach for a comfortable toolkit that's just because it's comfortable, and so uh, and not really ask yourself the harder question of do I need to bring something to bear here that I don't normally do, and so you know our firm is always asking the hard question of repertoire, right? Mm-hmm. How do we continue to push ourselves? as practitioners to make sure we're always learning, which is part of the reason we do as much research as we do, is we're constantly looking to uncover new things, mostly for the benefit of our clients, but also to make sure that we as practitioners are staying fresh, that our our pattern recognition apparatus is not stale. Um, There may be tried and true patterns we've seen for 30 years, but it doesn't mean the the resolutions or the solutions need to be the same. Um, Sometimes they can be, but sometimes they can't. You know, there there, there are new technologies, there are new there are shorter paths. There are people who can, you know, uh, kinds of leaders who can actually leapfrog. And so we need to be aware that if, if the limitations, and we've done this before, if we recognize that the solutions are out, are sort of pushing our limitations to a place where we're not, we'll get somebody else. We'll go find another source of help to make sure that the client is ultimately getting what they need to get, even if it's not from us. So as I said in the opening, you've written eight books. That's a lot of books. Uh, without having the time in this show to go into the detail about the background of each one, and before we turn to your most recent book, I'd like to go back to your 2014 publication of Rising to Power, because this one especially caught my attention, um, primarily because I'm fascinated with the problem that you're trying to solve with it and the research behind it. You state that 50% of leaders rising up to new formal levels of influence in an organization fail within 18 months. Now, I wasn't surprised by that because it sounds true, but somehow reading the words, it was very sort of alarming or sobering or a bit of both. Um, So from your perspective, why is this? And what can someone do to avoid becoming part of this abysmal statistic? Well, like what I can tell you, Scott, is that what was a shock to us about that data was that it's been true for 20 years hmm. and we've all known it. And for us, what, what, what it became personal when it started to be our clients 
Um, that book began after a very large transformation we done with the CEO for his second tour as CEO in a different company, right? He brought us with him. And he called and said, I'm paying you to help these people. You're not helping them. And he was angry. Um, I got a call from a gentleman. We just finished the, the transformation design. And he, he was one of the rising stars of the company. Clearly, like everybody knew he was going to go places. When he got a big job in the design, nobody was shocked. And nine months later, he called me and said, hey, I'm looking for a job. And I was shocked. And then an hour later, the CEO called me and told me the hell let him go. And I was like, what, what happened here? How could we have misjudged this? And he, but, but the CEO made it in no uncertain terms clear that part of the responsibility was mine for not having better prepared him. And I was like, because none of, none of us practitioners ever want to hear that, right? So I said, can I come back in and like sniff around? I'm, I'm obviously not for money. I just want to, I want to know like what rock didn't we overturn that would have led to this? And, that, and that's what led that, that sort of little sniffing around investigation is what led to our 10-year study of 2,700 leaders because it was painful to watch somebody with such incredible talent hit a wall. Turns out our organizations plant those, you know, I went back to the CEO. I said, I'll, I will take responsibility for not warning him of all the landmines he was going to step in. You take responsibility for putting them there. Because what, what we, what, as we began to do the, do the research, what we found was um, it's a wonder, 90% of them aren't failing. When you, think, when you look at the obstacles put in their way, the paradigms of what it means to go from the middle to the top that are so radically different that nobody is warning them about, right? So wh- what happens is people in the middle just take the middle with them to the top and play, play to the things that made them successful there, which are a completely different set of muscles that are required. That, you know, so we identify in the book every possible obstacle we identified. Uh, for somebody, you know, we, we actually isolated 100 leaders in mid-ascent and followed them for a year to sort of, so almost like watch them in slow motion to see what was it that they were going to trip up on. We also, the most powerful part of the data research was that we were able to isolate what were the other 50, 50% doing? If, who, if there's half of them are flaming out, some data report it's 60% that flames out. What were the other half doing? How were they sticking the landing? What were they doing? We actually were able to isolate really specifically four patterns of, of capabilities that every time when someone stuck landing were present in their work. So we were able to identify all the landmines on the way up and then also all of the tools that it takes to actually stick the landing when you land so that nobody ever had to face, you know, what, what was struggling to me is, well, I mean, HR is just play, rolling the dice with people's careers here, right? It's, it's, like, mm-hmm. how, how could this be acceptable? Like, why is it, why is a 50-50 ratio, okay, these are careers and livelihoods and families that are being disrupted because we think, let's give them a shot and see what happens. You know, here, here, here's the classic one. It's, it begins in the selection process, right? So we, we, we still use the two most, two least reliable devices we've known for a long time are not reliable selection tools, the resume and the interview. But we still do it. And the HR recruiter says things like, wow. Look at this major brand you built. We need brands built here. Or, oh my gosh, you have an incredible track record of building these technology apps. That's what we need here. And we try to sell people on the position by showing them how their track record can make them successful here. What are we doing? We're giving them permission to take a recipe and apply here. So they come in thinking they have this mythical mandate to repeat their past success. And they start slapping on their formula. And of course, what happens? It doesn't work. So they just slap harder. Yeah. And then everybody begins to back away. And so they're, and they, and they start turning over rocks and realizing 
it's worse than they thought. They go to the hiring person and say, you didn't tell me it was this bad. Um, and so we have this classic case of, you know, uh, the diagnosis has become an indictment and the halo has now become a noose. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, and so you have this very slow death. Um, or they, they let their dissatisfaction be so known that it becomes a quick death. So those are just two very simple, you know, but very common landmines that are so preventable that we're, we're still proliferating. So I could imagine somebody listening going, okay, so if I'm not using the resume in the interview, what should I be doing, uh, you know, as a, as a recruiter, for example? Um, so the first one is use behavioral event tools. Those are commonly known, but, but have ca- clear calibration metrics to ha- evaluate the candidate. Make them do real work. Make them come in, you know, put them in simulated environments with your people. Put them, make them present. Make them solve a problem. See them actually work in the context of your culture. Um, and, you know, test them. Don't, don't just rely on self-reported information or rely on past history as though it was, a, you know, the, the indicator you wanted it to be. It's, a, it's an indicator of experience, but it's not, it's not the calibrator you think it is that will predict whether or not they'll be successful in your company. So let, let's turn to your latest book, to be honest. You've identified four factors um, clear identity, accountability, governance, cross-functional relationships that have a profound impact on honesty, justice, and purpose within the company. And when these factors are absent or they're inefficient, dysfunctional, the organizational conditions compel employees to choose dishonesty and self-interest. That's a powerful statement. Let's, let's unpack that a bit, Ron. Well, so I think, I mean, aren't we all just a little tired of the stories that you know, drain our souls, right? The stories of the Theranos and Wells Fargo and Volkswagen and Pickett, right? Um, and I think we're even more dissatisfied with the explanations of, oh, it was a couple of bad apples or, uh, oh, it was the culture, you know, as though that these were like predictable things. Um, they, th- those are just, they're, they're not explanatory and they're certainly not excusing. I wanted to know, you know, in, in an environment that's so, as, you know, societally polarized as it is, where people are, you know, disengagement remains at an all-time high. We've, we've all heard the Gallup stat for 20, you know, 15 years now, hasn't really moved much. Could, I wanted to know, could we predict the conditions under which otherwise good-hearted, well-intended people do something dumb and stupid or and dishonest? And what if we could predict those, what those conditions are, could we prevent them? Or if we could predict the conditions under which they'll do the opposite, they'll, 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 that do what's right and good, could we proliferate those conditions? Um, and I don't know that I expected to find what we did. In fact, I'm, I know I didn't expect to find what we did, but I was excited to know that we, we, did, we could predict. In fact, there are conditions that, that directly correlate to, uh, and uh, honesty in the book is not defined as not lying. I mean, I think we're, we're at a place in our world where leaders are start distrusted and, and have to go into the black, into trust, slowly. Um, so honesty is not just, it's not just an about to lie. So truth, justice, and purpose are the inner, what we found both in the neuroscience of the brain and what, what our brains calibrate those things are, are closely related in the same part of our brain that you have to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. Truth, justice, and purpose. So that's, that's how we define honesty in the book. That's what will get you labeled as that, as, as such. 
And there are a number of systemic factors for, we, I mean, yeah, probably are others, but we found four that were statistically predictable and provable that if these are true in your organization, uh, in a positive sense, you can predict, you can multiply your likelihood of honesty. But if they're absent, you'll multiply your op- likelihood of dishonesty. So the four factors were, one was um, what we call honesty and identity. Be who you say you are. So you, you, we all have statements we make about our, our organizations. So we make brand promises. We make purpose statements. We have missions and visions and values. We have codified statements of identity. Turns out that if, you're a, if your actions and the way you behave actually match what those words say, um, you're three times more likely to have people be honest. But if there's a gap, if those words are cosmetic for cosmetic consumption only, but, but that's not actually how you behave, you've now institutionalized duplicity. What you've now said to your organization is, so just so you know, around here, we say one thing, but we do another. Mm. And you've told everybody that's okay. And so now you're three times more likely to have people be dishonest because you've given them permission to do so. The second factor was dignity and justice and accountability. Meaning if the way I perceive my work to be talked about and evaluated is fair uh, and, and with dignity, um, you're four times more likely to have me be honest. But if I feel objectified, if I feel demeaned, if I feel demoralized, if I feel unseen and unknown um, in any way, um, I now have to embellish my accomplishments and hide my mistakes to be seen and known. Now you're four times more likely to have people be, be dishonest. Third was transparency and governance. Meaning if I walk into a meeting in my organization of any kind, and I believe what's happening in that room is an honest presentation of data, uh, a grounded sense of different views of that data and its benefits and limitations, that the person presenting that information does not have some hidden agenda, and that my voice is, uh, is welcomed to disagree with it, to offer a different point of view, or even to dissent uh, its, its interpretation. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have people be honest, because now that, that is a true transparency in how decisions are being made. But if I walk into that room and I think it's something about orchestrated theater, that the person presenting the data has an agenda, that the data has been sanitized or spun or manipulated in some way to say a certain thing, and that there's other data that had been left out of the room. And the last thing I think you wanna hear is a point of view that contradicts the prevailing one in the room. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have you be dishonest because now for me to get the truth, I have to go somewhere else underground. Hmm. And the last one, which would probably are probably the most surprising factor was what we call border wars or cross-functional relationships or partnerships. The classic border wars, right? Sales and marketing, supply chain and operations, R&D and marketing. The places where you typically have intractable tensions, where, you've, where your organization fragments into silos. <clears throat> when those seams are well-stitched, when there are healthy me- linking mechanisms that, that hold the tension of those seams, that allows them to manage the tensions in a healthy but resolvable way, you're six times more likely to have people be honest because now I have unified one story. I don't have my truth versus your truth. But if you allow those border wars to remain in place and they become intractable conflicts, if they become uh, classic we, they tribalism and and your cross-functional partners are seen as your pains of a neck and your rivals, now you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest because now I have to, it's no longer about a single source of truth. It's about my truth versus your truth. And the only goal I have there is to win. 
and be right. So now you're six times qualified to have you be dishonest. Mm-hmm. It's a huge factor to, to, to sway someone's choices there. Um, what was also fascinating to us is that the, the statistics are cumulative. So if you're good at all four of those things, if you can find some reasonable degree of mastery, you're 16 times qualified to increase the quotient of honesty mm-hmm. on your team or in your department or in your organization. But if you suck at all four of those things, you're now 16 times more likely to have people uh, put you into a headline you never wanted to be in. So those are such compelling statistics. It makes so much sense to me. But the question that springs to mind is, what's the delta between organizations who think they have have these attributes and are living them? It's not just cosmetic. They're doing it versus the organizations that actually have them. So I love the question, Scott. It's the absolute right question because let's we can write off the people who don't care about it, right? So, so you 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 will your fate will be your fate and good luck. But the the gap between intentions and impact is is typically the delta we have to deal with because many leaders want good credit for the want credit for the good intentions, right? I wrote the statement because I meant it. I helped craft it because I, and they believe that because they think it is so, right? And that those are the dangerous leaders. Those are the leaders who tell me, well, I don't need to read your book because I'm already honest. And I'm like, you need to read it the most because you, your understanding of yourself um, and, and the gap between your intentions and your actual impact is much wider than you think. Here's a very simple litmus test. If you don't have somebody coming into your office once or twice a week saying something that makes you uncomfortable, you can be 100% confident your leadership sucks. Very simple. Because, and... If your conclusion is that they're not coming in to tell me something uncomfortable because there isn't anything to tell me, now you're stupid. Because rest assured, if you lead a team of five or a division of 50 or a region of 500 or 5,000, there are problems. There are things that need your attention. And if they're not telling you, it's not random. Um, so I don't mean people coming, coming in with recreational complaining. I mean, people coming into your office with actual challenges and needs, uh, some of which may have to do with you, uh, because they want to solve them. Um, so, so you don't have to look very far to see where the gaps might be. Ask your team, hey, if you followed me around with a videotape camera all day long, a day in the life of me as a leader, would you be comfortable using that video as a training program to train on our company values? Or would you be embarrassed? Do your people feel like they have a fair shot at success on your team? Or do you have roles that are privileged? Do you have, if you're a technology company, are your engineers privileged? If you're a high growth company, are your salespeople privileged? Um, and all the, I'm not saying all work is created equal. I understand there is some work that is more important than others in your company. Absolutely. But if, if those privileges disadvantage people from being successful, if in other words, the importance has transferred from the work to the people themselves, um, that's a problem. If there are certain identities in your organization that are privileged more than others because they're underrepresented, that's a problem. There are fact, there are sort of fungus cells growing in each of these four areas in a petri dish somewhere in your company. And if you don't actively go root them out, they will grow wider levels of fungus for you. Um, to assume they're not there is just simply, you know, at best naivety. So uh, to assume that your intentions are the same as your impact is either either incredible arrogance or incredible naivety um, without data to back it up, right? And if you're so confident 
that your actions and intentions actually match, go prove it. Go get the data that backs it up because you should want to know. Can you just give our listeners uh, a quick sense of the research that you did to get to those um, those numbers because they're so um, powerful? So this is based on 3,200 interviews we've done over the last 15 years with, with um, uh, leaders across 212 different organizations of all sizes and sorts. Um, we used some IBM Watson, we used some artificial intelligence uh, to analyze and read the data and then quantify it. So we looked for correlating factors. You, know, you feed the AI, it's just you know, creepily fascinating technology because it actually reads for meaning. But you give it, you give it parameters and factors. Um, we actually did not, and we did that in the rising to power study. We actually gave it good hypothesis for what, but this time we said, if you're so intelligent, tell us what, what questions we should be asking you about this data. So we, we fed it and it read it and we found these drill sites. And one of the drill sites were these interesting correlations between truth telling and honesty and these other factors. So that's where we went and dug deep at those drill sites. And basically the, 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 the technology actually quantifies the predictors of certain types of words and behaviors against certain types of outcomes. And so we had a list of seven or eight of those and we chose the four that were the most compelling and clearly, you know, um, multiplier multiplicative affects that were worthy of what we talk about. Thank you. Did you know you can find us on Twitter at evolving underscore leader? We're also on Instagram and LinkedIn. If you're on any of these social media platforms, we invite you to follow along and comment on your favorite episodes. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Ron, you, you, you referenced uh, your research in neuroscience, and one of the mm-hmm. topics that Scott and I are fascinated with is the science of mindset and self-awareness. And be interested to understand anything that you've learned there that's changed your thinking in, in recent years. Um, well, f- uh, f- a couple of things. First of all, that, that our brains are so neuro- neuroplastic, right, that we can change. It is possible to change even deeply entrenched behaviors. Uh, or deeply learned narratives that have come from painful places of trauma can be rewired. Um, and, and we owe it to our leaders to help them do that. Two, um, our brains are naturally wired for honesty, that our brains and our physical and emotional and psychological well-being are at their best when we are in honest environments. But in an environment that doesn't value that, we will, our brains will succumb, right? And so unlike our cell phones, our brains don't come equipped with restore factory settings buttons. So unless you remove yourself from that environment, you will keep moving the line. Um, and third, one really interesting factor was the, the place in our brain that regulates self-esteem is, a two neuro, is the attachment of two neural pathways between our self-knowledge and the opinions of others, right? And so of course, if that, and if that pathway is weak, we're prone to all kinds of anxiety and depression and not good mental health. But what that tells me is that leaders have disproportionate impact over how others perceive themselves, right? So, how, so this was in our accountability research. How you treat the contributions of others um, has an, an enormous impact on, on their self-perception. Today, it's more important than ever. In days when our accountability systems were designed to measure repeatable work, how many claims you processed, how many files you closed, how many T-shirts you printed, you know, keeping the contribution of the contributor objectively separate was easier. But today we try to scale sameness like fairness. And that's the very thing that makes it unfair. Because today my remit to you is my idea, my creativity, my analysis, my 
point of view, um, my radical dream. Um, today, the contribution and the contributor are more fused than ever. So when I evaluate the contribution, by default, I am evaluating the contributor. If I don't understand the dignity and fairness required of me to do that, I'm going to mistreat it. And I'm going to send you away from our conversation feeling demeaned, uh, unseen, misunderstood, misjudged, um, weakening that tie in your self-perception. Um, so the, the, the brain has given leaders incredible information about how to treat and the, the, their relationship to their, their reports that gives you a wide range and, a, frankly, a, a wider set of options for how you engage. What, what's your next uh, big project? Oh, my gosh. Uh, keeping this one going. <laughs> you know, it's a, I mean, it's a, I, launching a book is a long game, and it's, it's hard, right? The, you know, 50, 20% of the book is writing it. 80% of the book is, is getting it to the right hands and helping folks discover it. And, I, and I, we can do better. I believe we kind of need to do better. We have a world that's languishing and um, we, we just had a, a two-year reckoning of meaning, mm. right? We've had a two-year quarantined isolation of, of, of asking soul-searching questions around why am I here and why am I doing what I'm doing? Um, it's time our organizations understood that, that they create a context in which those questions can be answered well or not. Um, you know, I think I, what I'm referring to as cultures of solidarity that, that sort of marry belonging and purpose, right? So you never in my presence should ever have to wonder whether you fit or whether you matter. I have to take those questions off the table so that the rest of the questions you have to answer for yourself is how do I bring my best self and do my best work and go home proud that I did? And if you don't understand how to remove any obstacle that gets in the way of somebody positively being able to, to know that they belong and that they're important, and if their contribution and their voice it means something to you, um, then get after that and get after it soon. Because, you know, in a great resignation where we're, we're seeing people leaving NASDAQ, my, my, I just did a small piece of research for HBR on, okay, so we all, now we're hearing about the resignation and 40% of people want to quit. Okay, that means 60% of people want to stay. I, I wanted to go find out why. What's keeping them there? And sure enough, you know, what the research is all showing is that it's not the... Um, the transactional things companies think it's not better work, better pay, more flexibility. That's not it. Th those are important, but not nearly as important to people as meaning, respect, regard, trusting colleagues, um, a sense of belonging, uh, community. The relational factors are far more important to people. And the pandemic certainly fueled that, but that's, that's always been the case. So how we can do better. And that's the reason you want to have an honest company right? So that those things can be true. Nobody has to hide any part of themselves when they come to work. And I think this crisis of meaning has woken us up to a need for more authentic, honest organizations. Um, and here's the, the great, here was the great news in the research. On any performance metric you would care about, market share, earnings per share, um, employee satisfaction, brand loyalty, customer loyalty, um, product margins, profitability, Purpose-driven, integrity organizations far outperform their, their, their less than honest peers by wide factors and over longitudinal times, not just blips. That's the reason to do it, right? To unleash your organization's best and unleash your people's best. That's the reason to strive for honesty. Honesty is not a character trait. It's not a virtue. It is a muscle. It is a capability. And what we saw in the research is that to be good at it, you have to work at it every day. It's like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym for the first day and bench press 400 
kilograms. You, you know, you're, you're going to die. You have to work at that. And then once you get the strength to do that, you got to keep going back and doing it or you get weaker, right? Honesty is the same way. If you want to be good at it, um, it's not, it's not good intentions that will do it. And who has inspired you uh, in, in being an exemplar in this field, either as a leader or as an organization? Well, so that's, that was probably the, the best part of writing this book, John. It's a book of heroes. I didn't want to write about the villains anymore. I'm tired of them. Mm. I wanted to write about the people we want to emulate, the people we'd all love to be, follow and be proud to work for. So, and so the book is full of them, um, from business sectors and from other sectors. I, I went way outside. I went to Africa, in the Congo, to talk to people doing restorative justice work. I went to the symphony world to talk about women who are doing great work for poverty through their symphonies. So Hubert Jolie at Best Buy, um, Marin Alsop at the, at the Baltimore Symphony, um, uh, Jacinda Ardern, you know, Prime Minister of uh, New Zealand, um, uh, Satya Nadella at Microsoft, you know, worthy of being touted for what he's doing there. And um, Ed, 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 um, Ed uh, Townley from Cabot Creamery, um, Vincent Stanley from Patagonia, <clears throat> Rob Balat, the attorney who led the um, incredible work for justice for the people that DuPont killed. Um, that, that's the stories of the book. And we actually did a TV show as well. So we have a whole TV series of those interviews that folks can go watch as well. Um, they inspire me. They, they, every, every story that I had the privilege of curating in the book made me, me want to do better, right? made, me, made me want to be more honest and more purposeful in my life. Um, and I know their stories will inspire people when they read them. And where can people go and see those videos? So uh, the book has a website called tobehonest.net. Um, and if you look for the TV series called Moments of Truth, all 50, 15 episodes, you can binge watch them. I also had co-hosts. So um, I had uh, Khalil Smith from the Neural Leadership Institute and Jared Sapel also went, did segments on everyday justice and finding your voice. So there are, so every episode has three amazing, two or three amazing guests. Uh, it's a 30 minute episode. You can binge watch them all on a weekend and really get an, a front row seat to some incredibly inspiring and thoughtful people. Yeah, they definitely sound worth, um, worth uh, watching. Yeah. And if you want to know more about your team, there's a free, at the same website, there's a free assessment called How Honest Is My Team? Oh, cool. And you can, and you can download that assessment and see if, you, if your team's giving you the real skinny or not. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there really uh, quaking now, thinking, <laughs> should I or shouldn't I do that? <laughs> yeah, because you can't unsee it once you do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, Ron, uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your insights. Is there any final thoughts or calls to action that you want to leave our listeners with? Well, obviously, I hope I hope that you'll check out the book and come come hang out with us and follow me on LinkedIn. And um, But more than anything else, I hope you'll ask yourself the question, Am I being who I say I am? Hmm. Um, will my children in 20 years be proud that I was their parent? Will the people that I led tell stories of me in 20 years about how I changed their careers in life? Um, you get one shot to leave a very unique fingerprint on the world. Don't waste it. Yeah, hmm. that's, a, that's a great way to end the show. Ron, thank you so much for your time. It's been inspiring. It's been really practical and insightful. Um, and you've given us lots of takeaways. So, well, John, you. Scott, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and helping me spread the word. Mm, absolutely. Thank you. Be sure to grab a copy of To Be Honest today. And remember, until next time, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?